Welcome to the first episode of Cities in Cinema, a new podcast which explores the greatest cities in the greatest and not so greatest films. I'm Jingan Yang. I'm a researcher and screenwriter, creator of the Soho on Scream Soho Bites podcast. Each episode will welcome guests from all circles, from critics, historians to fans. We'll dissect why we love seeing our favorite cities on screen, but more importantly, perhaps, why we love to debate the authenticity of that representation on screen and what it means and why it's important. In this episode, we're keeping it in Europe with four guests talking about three very different films, La Haine, Eyes Wide Shut and Hollywood in London. I hope you enjoy the show. C'est l'histoire d'un homme qui tombe d'un immeuble de 50 étages. Le mec, au fur et à mesure de sa chute, il se répète sans cesse pour se rassurer. Jusqu'ici, tout va bien. Jusqu'ici, tout va bien. Jusqu'ici, tout va bien. Mais l'important, c'est pas la chute. C'est l'atterrissage. That was just a short clip from La Haine, directed by Matho Kasovic, which this year is celebrating its 25th anniversary since premiering to a standing ovation at the 1995 Cannes Film Festival. I'm really excited to be talking about the City of Lights, you guessed it, Paris, in this first episode of Cities in Cinema with Arabella Kennedy Comston. Arabella is a filmmaker, contributing film editor for The Slice, and her recent produced written work includes coverage for this year's London Film Festival, The Slice, Film Cred, and as a cinematographer, she has several upcoming films about to be released. Now, you must watch the film, but a short synopsis would be the 24-hour life of three friends from a poor neighborhood or banlieue in Paris. So without further ado, let's start the show. Welcome to the show. Hello, welcome. Thank you for having me. So why La Haine for your favourite film? Oh, well, gosh, it's probably been my favourite film since I first watched it. Genuinely, I don't think there's been another film I've watched that's struck such a chord with me, um, just kind of left me a bit speechless. Um, And it's it's just so refreshing. I think the portrayal of Paris is unlike still anything I've really seen in cinema because I grew up with... You know, even films like Ratatouille come to mind with the romanticization of the city. It's probably arguably the most romanticized city in the world, right? It's, you know, associated with all things um, like romance and love and passion and art. So to see the gritty portrayal of it in La Haine, how Matthew Kasovitz does, it's just, it's so fascinating to me. I think I was maybe just shocked the first time I saw it because um, it didn't feel like what I was expecting you know any anything to do with how it was shot with the black and white with you know there's so little such little iconography um and it's all it's all surrounding you know the story is based in the city half in the city but it's really about the trio of friends at the center of it and what they go through within this 24 hours so it's just their backdrop really for what happens to them yeah, and it's so incredible that it's it's achieved this cult status and that it's celebrating really? 25 years in the public imagination. And I was reading sort of an article in The Guardian, actually, celebrating this um, this film, which, which seems to hold so much political reflexivity. I would definitely say I wouldn't... 
I find it so interesting because it's a, a film that I've done so much research about. Um, with the 25th anniversary, there was a screening. I don't know if you've seen, they did the 4K restoration of it. Um, and I was lucky enough to go see it at the BFI South Bank. Um, and there was even an interview with um, Matthew Katowicz himself, which was brilliant, obviously done virtually. Um, and that with his interview that was in Sight and Sound magazine this year, um, he basically said that it wasn't intended for black and white at first. I think they he wanted to make it in colour and then due to financial reasons um, and lack of timing, it was different with them shooting in the different locations because they had the banlieue and then the city itself. Um, you know, he wanted it to feel quite historical, quite timeless. Um, um, a quote that he said was, it brings poetry into reality with making it black and white. Um, and I think it really relates to, you know, the repetition of history. Like you said, France has gone through very, I don't want to say similar things, but equally as tragic things over the years. You know, they've, you see all these different sides. And like you said, the underbelly of the city, um, I think the black and white really helps to draw that out. And it does make it feel quite timeless. Like it is... I think it's so fascinating that the story is still so resonant today. It still holds so strongly. Um, and 25 years ago, you know, that was quite a while now. So, and the only thing I can really compare it to is, I don't know if you heard about Lady Lies film, um, Les Miserables, the new one. Not another Les Miserables remake. <laughs> you don't need any more of those. No, Unfortunately not. It's it's not about it's not a musical. Um, but it's very similar thematically to La Hen. Um, and it's so fascinating to see them, you know, be a perfect double bill. Um, <laughs> to see them side by side because almost twenty it's I think it was 2019, so 24 years later, and we're still exploring, you know, the tension in these underprivileged areas on the outskirts of the city and their relationship with the police. It doesn't really feel as though much has changed. And it's it's just mind boggling, really. So I really appreciate how Matthew decided to portray it, because I think I think the black and white is it does make it seem very poetic, but equally, yeah, very timeless. I wonder if you could now talk a little bit about um, what stands out for you in the representation of, of Paris and the way, way it's shot, um, particularly the way it uses black and white. So I would say um, in terms of kind of how it was shot and um, how they decided to, or more accurately, how they ended up filming it is with the um, shooting in the banners. So the underprivileged, you know, the estates, um, they had lots of, I think they had access to a crane and, um, you know, very impressive camera equipment for their budget and for the time. So they have, you know, in those scenes, you see lots of wide shots. You see um, the trio of characters, you know, almost dwarfed in the space around them. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of room for everyone, but there isn't much going on. It's all very underdeveloped. Um, there's lots of, you know, derelict houses, things like that. Um, so it's very gritty from the get-go, I would say. But what's fascinating with the contrast that is created um, when they do travel to Paris, it's all very, um, it's quite close, it's quite contained. Um, it's shot, as Matthew Katowicz said himself, gorilla style. <laughs> so they had, I think, one camera, one long lens. Um, so they kind of had to make do with what equipment they had. But I, I do think that the effect it created compared to, you know, how they 
the characters just seem so different in the in the two environments not in terms of like how they act because they're you know the shenanigans they get up to are pretty consistent throughout but um just in terms of how the environment you know relates to them like with the you know the infamous zolly shot when they first arrive in paris and they're up on this um balcony and they're just standing around um hubert's pacing and you have the camera um track in whilst the background of paris and all of these shiny lights start to blur and fade away so they're in the space but it's almost like the space isn't accepting them or really letting them you know um be welcomed into it like how maybe tourists would or how maybe films like anastasia or amelie would portray you know all of these sparkly lights and what i find so fascinating as well is one of the only times i think arguably the only time we see the eiffel tower is about four in the morning where they're stuck there all night and they're up on a balcony smoking a joint on top of a roof and um you just see the eiffel tower's lights in the background just shut off and it it, it feels so it gives such a sense that they're so unwelcome in this city and the city doesn't want anything to do with them um and i i think it's just i think the contrast is so strong i think it's so brilliantly done so i'm probably just gonna um spend all this time just praising Matty Kasovitz but um the way he introduces the characters in relation to the space is so well thought out as well because you know we start with the montage of all of the protests right that have been going on which kind of sets up the story and then before you know it we have a slow pan of all of the police like you know uniform police all standing around looking quite menacing and then we cut to Saeed, um, the first intro- introduced character who's <laughs> graffitiing on their one of their vans and he's writing his name. And then we get Vince introducing himself through his name on a ring and Hubert introducing himself um, through a boxing poster in his gym that's just been completely destroyed with all of these riots and these protests that have been going on the past few nights. Um, and it's there's such like a you know, it helps to marry them to this space that they live in. And it it does feel as though, I don't even know if it's a matter of whether they're welcome or not, but their presence is there and they're making it, not the space's problem, but they're, you know, they're being very loud and proud about it. It's if they don't feel welcome in the city um, and maybe, you know, because they are all considered not officially or nationally French, right? They're all from different backgrounds. Um, it's their way of, you know, kind of reclaiming some of that power and saying, this is our home. Um, you know, they don't respect the police at all. Um, they've lost a friend. Well, they've got a friend in hospital um, because they've been attacked by the police. So the tension is is very real. And although they would, I guess you would naturally expect them to feel unwelcome, and that is the case, you know, with the local authority, they're not taking it easily, you know, they're not, they're not just backing down. Um, and I think, yeah, it's such a character driven piece. And I think the dynamic between them is so fascinating. And I, I, I do believe that they, you know, I think they, they represent a whole community of young boys, young people who live in those areas, who you know with very what they have they're really trying to fight back against 
what they're being told to do, where they're, you know, they're, where they're told where to go. Um, they're just trying to, you know, survive and just enjoy their lives while they've still got it. Um, they're always hanging out in like derelict places, um, you know, like dancing, sitting on rooftops, and they're always just getting moved along by authority. And it, it, it makes you really think like they don't really have anywhere to go they only really have like their parents apartments if they've even got one you know um and it's such a, a weird film to describe to people because it is very much just three men you know basically loitering for 24 hours and getting up to all sorts um but it's so much more than that because i feel like seeing them in the different spaces seeing them where they I guess you could say they feel more comfortable um, at home and then going to the city. Um, it's just such a fascinating character study and just it, I think it sheds light truly on how those areas of Paris are. I mean, I've never been <laughs> myself, but um, that and then after seeing Les Miserables as well, it, it seems like a pretty accurate and quite a fascinating portrayal i know that kasovitz and the main cast spent a lot of time in these areas before they actually started shooting as well um you know speaking to the locals and um just getting that insight so it, it does feel quite authentic to me um yeah um so yeah I, I think it's such an important film in that sense like historically Amazing. I've had such a great time chatting to you, Arabella. Thank you so much for coming on. My last question, one that I'll ask all of our guests in each episode, is what is your favourite city? Wow. Um, I'm going to be really boring and say London <laughs> because I absolutely love London. I've lived here for, um, this is my second year living here and I have no plans to leave anytime soon. It's It just... I, I love the blend of the old and the new that you see from street to street, from building to building. Um, I love how many cinemas there are and how often I can go to the cinema. Um, it's just, and I still can, they're open again, which is brilliant. Um, yeah, I absolutely love it here. Um, I was always obsessed with it when I was younger, you know, coming for days shopping and whatnot. Um, and I know it's very boring, but I, I just think it, it's got a bit of everything for me here. <laughs> so I'm going to stick around. <laughs> you were listening to me talking to Arabella Kennedy Comston. If you'd like to check out some of her incredible articles, you can see some of her previous work on ArabellaKennedyComston.com. Alice. What do you think we should do? What do I think we should do? Look, Mommy. Hey. <sighs> what do I think? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I... Grateful 
that we've managed to survive through all of our adventures. And we'll be taking a little adventure of our own, just a hop, skip and a jump across the channel from Paris to the Old Smoke. We'll be talking about a film that isn't necessarily associated with the city, Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Despite being set in Manhattan, the film actually was shot predominantly on location in London and at Pinewood Studios. Contentious upon release, and contentious even now, we'll be discussing the reasons behind this erotic dreamscape. I'll be talking to Robert P. Corker, Professor Emeritus at the University of Maryland, author of numerous books, from Alfred Hitchcock to Stanley Kubrick, and Nathan Abrams, professor in film at Bang University in Wales and co-founding editor of the Jewish Film and New Media Journal, which I've had the honour of contributing an article to. Both are co-authors of Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick and the making of his final film, so we're in very esteemed company. Welcome, Nathan and Rob. Thank you so much for coming on the first episode of Cities and Cinema. First off, Rob, why did Kubrick decide to shoot in London instead of, you know, just shooting on location? Well, um, he was not about to go to New York to film. He didn't travel. And he also hadn't been to New York since the late 1960s. But he knew he wanted New York for this film, uh, a film that is adapted from a novel that is originally set in Vienna at the turn of the uh, 20th century. So he decided to build New York, the New York of his imagination, uh, on the soundstage with a few uh, location shots uh, thrown in. He also built a New York based on the New York that he had seen in movies, particularly movies of the 40s and 50s. And so what we get is a kind of memory dream city. Um, not quite New York, not quite not New York, um, but really a city of the imagination. Well, let's put this into context. You know, how many films of Kubrick's were shot on location? You know, out of the 13 feature films, um, you know, the minority were shot on location. So this just fits into his working practices anyway, even if he didn't want to fly back to New York and shoot there. And you know, to add to what 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 Robert said, he if you if you shoot on a set, you have greater control. And and after all, what did Kubrick want is control, and um, not just in his working life, but over the set itself. And and you know, if you're shooting in location and, and, and location in street scenes, you know, in London or New York, it's much more expensive, much more time consuming, and all the permits and just so many things could go wrong. Um, the only time he kind of was forced to do that in Eyes Wide Shut, sorry, the only time he did it in Eyes Wide Shut is because he was forced to do it. Um, so not only does he have greater, greater control, but he gets the craft, the New York that he wanted. So the New York of a memory, um, and and you know, he could he could make it how he wanted it, not have to just redress um, a sort of a New York that already existed. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, just upon rewatching it, it struck me how European um, Manhattan appears. Yeah, um, keep in mind that the novel, or the, the short story, the, the novella, is called Traum Novelle, Dream Story. And 
Um, it is about erotic dreaming and about a man who is driven to distraction when he learns that his wife has erotic feelings, something that he apparently was not aware of and couldn't quite handle. And um, her admission sends him on an odyssey uh, throughout the streets uh, of Greenwich Village and Lower Manhattan, uh, in the course of which he meets all kinds of interesting characters and winds up out in Long Island at an orgy, which um, many people thought was an outrageous sequence, and it is an outrageous sequence. Um, and uh, then Jeffrey Epstein came along and people realized it wasn't so outrageous. <laughs> no, exactly. What makes you think is European? Um, if I can ask the questions, Jingen. Of course you can ask a question. Um, yeah, the European vibe is, is just through, I guess, well, the architecture, obviously. And for example, when Tom Cruise visits the costumer, you know, immediately my mind just, you know, went to Soho because the small business owner is seemingly re reputable, but actually is, you know, prostituting his daughter and, and sells these masks to this secret organization. So there's something, I guess it's just from my own research into Soho, I can't help but imprinting my own, my own impression on every city. And there are so many sequences, the orgy scene, most notably, which clearly takes place in a, you know, a mansion somewhere in, in the countryside. And there's something, yeah, there's something so inherently English about this film. Yeah, he, he used, yeah, he used three, three locations, which he sort of meshed for, for what became the entire orgy sequence. Um, and it's interesting because people criticise Lolita for looking like it was shot in England, which it was, um, um, particularly on the travelling sequences. But to go back to your comment, I think the interesting thing about setting it in the village is the village, if you think of its origins, is that part of New York as being Dutch. Um, well, all right, you know, in terms of settlement, not origins, you know, it's Dutch and the street names are still Dutch, like the Bowery. And um, and we know it's kind of the oldest part of Manhattan because it doesn't have numbered streets, right? It's still street names, which he made up for the movie. Um, so, you know, in a sense, if there is a European feel, that's possibly because that part of, of, of Manhattan is the most European part, one could argue. Um, you know, you know, the most Dutch and then and then and then Indian, British, um, and the streets are kind of smaller. Um, and closer together, a bit more packed than, than perhaps once we start to move uptown. Yeah, exactly. And just this sort of, um, I guess it's a refusal to use a landmark um, or having, you know, kind of a montage to kind of situate us in a city is definitely missing from this film. Yeah, I, I think that, that notion of the monuments, he really went out of his way not to present monuments, to present any of the markers that we usually see in a film about New York, but to create the most ordinary of, uh, of streets. Um, and the, the only time you get actual footage is um, early on um, when um, they go to Ziegler's party at the beginning of the film 
there's some second unit shooting of some actual streets and buildings. Uh, but for the for the walking, Tom Cruise's peregrinations through the city, he wanted the most ordinary looking streets. And he populated that ordinariness with signs and window dressings um, that in a way were speaking to um, the character's state of mind. Um, nipped in the bud is a name of a florist that he passes by indicating that um, this poor guy is not going to get any kind of erotic satisfaction that uh, that he's seeking. Um, there is at one point in the distance a sign that's a red sign that says Eros that again sort of quietly signals what um, what is underlying the pressure of this character to uh, find some uh, relief from his um, erotic confusion uh, and his uh, disturbed desire. So the streets are really oneric, they're dreamlike. Um, they speak to the unconscious. They are the unconscious. Um, Kubrick was at great pains not to indicate in the conventional way what was dreaming, dream and what was reality. Um, for Kubrick, all film was dream. Um, all film um, played a perspective on reality. And here was a film that was about dreams. And so we are left with this uneasiness. We share the uneasiness of the character who is floating through these, um, through these sets, through these scenes, through these streets, um, trying to discover who his erotic self is and failing at every single point. Only as sure as I am that the reality of one night, let alone that of a whole lifetime, can ever be the whole truth. And no dream is ever just a dream. The important thing is we're awake now and hopefully for a long time to come. Forever. I mean, just to go back to what I was saying, if you think where where one might go to get the ferry to 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 Ellis Island, you know, um, I'm trying to think what that bit's called right on the tip there. You know, that's the first part of Man. Well, that bit's landfill, but that bit's the first part of Manhattan, and that kind of um, of settled Manhattan that that stretches northwards. And then there's more space as you get a bit more northwards. Not there's loads of space in New York, but yeah, the the overlaying of that kind of emigration and 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 re-emigration and constant change does map nicely to Soho. So in using kind of Soho as a substitute for a village, 
you've got those shared histories of both places mm. um, in, in, in terms of comings and goings and particular and particularly sort of um you know ethnic minorities and communities all living in a very densely packed space the the interesting thing about the use of greenwich village is that um you know if i remember it doesn't it doesn't quite have the reputation of a red light district i mean in its very name suggests the opposite you know green greenwich greenwich um and this is a movie about envy uh, on one level so there's a nice little subtle play there um, but Greenwich Village is also where Kubrick lived. And just to reflect on a couple of things that you and Bob said, um, whilst this is a dream set, it's one based on, on on extraordinary research into reality. So although Kubrick's movies are all dreamlike and dreamscapes, at the same time, he goes to extraordinary lengths to get it right, um, you know, down to measuring the heights of apartments and, and, and having an entire apartment stripped and, and, and installed as the set. So, you know, it... The, the actual, I think, I think, you know, to reconcile these two things, the actual construction of the set is extraordinarily realistic and detailed, but the shooting of it in terms of, you know, the actual film stock and, and how he processed it is dreamlike. Um, and the nature of the actual structure of it, um, well, on one hand, it's got to fit into a pattern, into a back lot. But the second thing, those structural kind of impossibilities, one finds it in The Shining as well lend themselves to the dreamlike nature um, at the same time so you can kind of make use of it as part of the kind of very properties of the film itself and 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 to reflect on something you know about this tom cruise probably wouldn't have gone to tourist places sorry you know, tom cruise's character so it's in you know we don't need establishing shots of the empire state building or um, uh, uh, statue of liberty or the standard or one of the bridges um you know tom cruise is you know, Bill Harper's probably not visiting those places. So it makes sense. If one does want to see a more conventional use of New York, I suppose, in a Kubrick movie, it would be Killer's Kiss, which is shot on location, guerrilla style, around 42nd Street in part. Um, but it's a 42nd Street in Times Square that most of us who are of a certain age won't recognise. So his most touristy film is one that you have to be a certain age to see as touristy. This film, you know, clearly can be interpreted in a myriad of ways. And we've just sort of spoken about why it's bad to theorise Kubrick's movies to, to impress upon our own, um, you know, psychological uh, interpretations because, you know, we should just enjoy it as a, as a piece of art. But I wonder if there is something in that in itself, in his canon of work about he loves the fact that we're all just scratching our heads and, and trying to understand the films. And hence the proliferation of conspiracy theories around Kubrick's work in which the un unintended is taken as intended um, as some kind of secret code, <laughs> um, which isn't there. But it's definitely ripe for the plucking in this film. Um, not to backtrack too much, but, you know, what was his sort of intention with the film? What sort of drew him to this novella initially? Oh, he was drawn to the project 50 years before. Um, he was thinking about this, um, about this film or the, the making of a film from this uh, uh, novella since the early 1950s. And he kept putting it in the back of his mind. Um, it, it appears in various guises in, his, in the films that he did make. 
but it took him all this time uh, to realize what it would take to make this novel, this novella work um, in, in the late 20th century. Uh, it came out of, in a sense, a, a disappointment over some projects that he was working on in the 90s, um, a film about the Holocaust, um, a science fiction film, both of which for various reasons um, he didn't get to make. Um, and so he turned to, uh, to this project that had been gnawing at him, if you will, uh, for all this time. And it came together rather quickly, although the actual shoot was very, very long. Um, he was extremely demanding about how things looked, demanding about the number of takes, demanding about the sets. If they weren't exactly what he wanted, he had them rebuilt or he went somewhere else where um, they looked more to his liking. As Nathan pointed out, there are three different uh, buildings used for the orgy sequence knitted together so that you can't tell. Um, and um, his two big stars, Cruz and Kidman, literally lived this life for over a year. Um, while um, while he worked out the uh, what he wanted to uh, to perfection. The other thing is, I'm going to depart slightly from what Bob said. Not everything we see in a kind of Kubrick mise en scene is deliberate by his own hand. Um, some of it he probably thought, well, no one will notice. Who cares? Um, and some of it was probably just happy coincidence, where he thought. Either if people notice it, who care? If they don't notice it, who cares? And if they do, well, you know what? They'll make what they want of it. And and I mean, I remember talking to one of the continuity guys, and he'd be like, "Well, um, Tom wasn't wearing his wedding ring in that shot," and and Kubrick would be like, "Well, I don't care." <laughs> you know, he wasn't that bothered by, despite the huge attention to detail, certain things didn't bother him apparently, and. It was like, well, people can make that of what they will. So, you know, I'll give an example. In The Shining, I make a lot of the fact that we see a picture on him on set turning cans in the larder where Jack is trapped to face the camera, right? And he might be just being because they look good or the colours are right or, or, as I put it, because of the writing on the cans. You know, and because of the reputation of Kubrick and his control, we then go, well, he must have met, wanted us to read that because it's clearly in the shot. But he might have just looked through the viewfinder and thought, you know what? Or as the tape ran back, that actually looks better if it's turned. And that might, you know, so there's always that tension. There's that curious tension between um, what is uh, uh, fortuitous or happenstance on a set and our tendency perhaps to over-determine it um, as, as, as critics, scholars, fans, but particularly in the case of Kubrick, because we think he meant everything. And how did um, audiences respond to the film upon its release? You know, it's, it's a real time capsule of a film. It was released on the cusp of the millennium. It, it feels like a 90s film. I know it's based on a novella, but, you know, there is this very, very contemporary vibe that, it, that it's got. And obviously, you know, the resonance in the public imagination now is so palpable. So I wondered at the time, what did people think of it? 
Yeah, as we detail in the, we did a chapter on reception in our book. Um, you know, a lot of critics hated it when it first came out, and um, you know, it's undergone a subsequent critical um, kind of reevaluation, and uh, uh, so it, you know, the, the panning it initially received um, has been tempered somewhat later. But that didn't always um, chime with audiences, particularly in certain countries. If you speak to Jan Harlan, the executive producer and Stanley's brother-in-law, he'll say in certain Latin countries, Japan, it did, it did extremely well. Um, it was just sort of in Anglo-American countries um, where, where it did less well um, because they didn't get it. And, and there's often that disconnect between the critical view and the audience's view of a Kubrick film. And that's most clearly... Um, obvious with 2001 uh, um, but like with most Kubrick films whilst this one might not be as mimicked as say The Shining is um, or 2001 um, like with any sort of image that Kubrick produces or phrase Bob you know, mentioned Eyes Wide Shut but Doctor Strangelove they enter the culture as memes and through Simpsons parodies uh, and you know to the cognoscenti so and and we we look at some of that in in the chapter where we where where, where a lot of the kind of ideas of eyes wide shut play out across loads of media, whether it's film, TV, advertising, music, fashion. Um, there's you know new products influenced by the film in tangential ways. Uh, um, yeah, you know, coming out well, they did come out fairly regularly. Yeah, it's interesting, the meme thing, because it does, there is this, um, yeah, there is a kind of playfulness about this film as being representative of, you know, disillusionment of consumer culture and, and the, the you know, the kind of brash display of wealth and, and power and privilege. So, it yeah, it, it definitely has resonance in that way. I've, I've, I've never thought of it in, in, in that way. Um, the film is really open-ended. Um, even though it it seems to end on a reconciliation. Um, but the last word of the film is really discomforting. And to my mind, nothing is settled. That the um, disturbances that the film creates are really not settled. And... I think Nathan is right that there really is a kind of awareness that this is like Schnitzler's novel a hundred years before, a turn of a, a, a millennial piece, a turn of the century piece. Can I come in? Can I come in on that? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because we missed that bit. I think where the parallels are is, um. It's a it's the kind of height of American empire or height of American hubris, um, just as it was in 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 Fantasiac Vienna, and look what happened to the Habsburg Empire, um, you know, not not long thereafter. I mean, people don't talk about the Habsburg Empire as one of the great empires anymore, um, despite its longevity and what it contributed. It's not there in the pantheon of empires, you know, if there's such a thing, you know, is Rome or. or uh, or the British Empire, for example. And so he's contrasting societies at their kind of hubristic, self-satisfied, um, probably debauched peak. And if we are going to imbue Kubrick with prophetic powers, then 
Copenhagen in that updating of Vienna, he's naturally getting us to compare to Vienna, and 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 you know how 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 much more of a prophet is he that that um, you know seventeen years after that film came out that the the the, the, the Nadir of a, an American presidency was produced as as a product of that American hubristic pig. <laughs> 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 so cute. They, they, don't, they don't like Trump. Um, you know that the, a TV reality star is debased, debased the presidency as elected president really shows the decline of I think America's place in the world and how people view America's place in the world. Um, at least amongst Western liberal elite types. And so, you know, maybe it's too soon to say, but we don't know where things will be going. Just as when Schnitzler was writing, you know, in the first um, kind of decades of the 20th century, he, he couldn't have predicted where Vienna was going and, and the Habsburg Empire, which seems so strong and impregnable. Right? So, you know, maybe there is a war. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> no, I think you've completely hit the nail on the head. Exactly. I just wondered, you know, did Kubrick know this was his last film? Yeah, I think there was probably a pretty strong notion that this would be his last film, even though he was planning others at the same time. But that sense of gathering the family together, gathering his own cinematic past together, uh, is very powerful. Gathering the history of cinema together uh, is very strong in the film. It is a kind of um, summation. Well, this has been just an incredible conversation about Kubrick and a film that, you know, continues to baffle even me. Um, I'd like to sort of ask you a question that we ask all our guests at the end of an episode. Uh, what is your favourite city? Oh, a favourite city? London, by all means. And why, why London? It's fantastic, but why London? Well, I was brought up in New York City and uh, lived there for many, many, many years. And New York, and don't anymore, and New York has become a sort of dead place. Um, London, however, is so full of life um, that it's just, I find it energizing whenever I go back. It's so very true. And, and Nathan, what about you? What's your what's your favourite city? Well, there's only one I've spent so much time in is London. Ah, London again. I, I don't know. I always have an affection for Paris. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, it's probably the one I have most extensive experience of, so it's kind of hard to compare. But I think one thing, you know, I was born and raised in London. Um, so, you know, I'm in exile here um, in North Wales. But I think what I like about London, despite it being expensive and big and, and all that, is when you know it, you know how to do it cheaply and well. So, uh, you know, you, you can cycle around and there's a lot of stuff going on for free um, or, or for 10, well, at least when I lived there, £10 and under, or you could go see the theatre or, or a movie or, or free stuff, you know, arts, culture, or eat really well of any, almost any cuisine that you want. And, and you don't have to be rich. And, um, you know, not every city can offer that, that range of kind of things where, well, of course, if you're rich, it helps, but you don't have to be. And um, once you get to know a city well, that, that I think I think that's what London offers. And I'm not sure many others offer that, um, of that range 
but they're kind of under it's probably under 15 pounds now but at least when i lived there the, the under 10 pounds kind of market and with those glowing reviews for our fair city of london uh, we conclude our discussion on eyes wide shut I was talking to Nathan Abrams and Robert Kolker, co-authors of Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the making of his final film. If you'd like to learn more about Nathan and Robert, there'll be a link on the podcast episode, so please do check that out. lucky we caught a ride we made some good time welcome to jolly old london it's hideous yeah it's not for everybody and so to conclude our inaugural episode we move from the new york london kubrick fantasy but not very far. Yeah, we're probably being a little too London-centric in this episode, but it's been a particular interest of mine for a while. That is, why has there been an increase in the Hollywood mega-blockbuster choosing London as the setting for their big action spectaculars? Films such as Wonder Woman, Jack Ryan, Edge of Tomorrow, The New Men in Black. To talk about all this, and perhaps to answer the reason why, is our final guest, Chris Holiday, who teaches film and liberal arts at King's College London. Chris was kind enough to revise his incredible article, Contemporary Hollywood Terrorism and London Has Fallen Cinema, first published in the London Journal for our blog. So please check it out if you can over at citiesandcinema.co.uk. So without further ado, let's talk to Chris on why London is reimagined as a dilapidated dystopian city, always on the brink of destruction. I've always been obsessed with with sort of popular Hollywood cinema, and 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 I felt like every time I was watching a, a contemporary Hollywood film, London was a was a kind of uh, mainstay of it of its narrative, and, and crucially, it was being presented as a location uh, in decline, and so that sort of became the genesis of of what I ended up writing about, and and then when I ended up uh, sort of. Um, rewriting a little bit for your for your website i guess london obviously has a long-standing history as a popular location in in hollywood i mean we can go back to the the studio era and the sort of re-representation of of london in in in, i guess studio spaces obviously mary poppins is probably one of the most popular examples but there are a number of filmmakers that sort of used that use london hitchcock was obviously a a great proponent of on-location shooting Uh, there's a number of films throughout the sort of 30s and 40s that did have moments that we might sort of call london sequences if you like but very rarely they were filmed on location and i think part of that shift is, is and something that i was interested in in kind of researching the article was sort of why london has become this increased space or why is it so viable why has it become so viable for sort of blockbuster activity um and you mentioned the sort of what, why, what, what, what kind of prompted this change? And I think one, it's perhaps a um, increase in studio space. I know that between uh, for a kind of ten-year period between two thousand three two thousand and thirteen, which I think actually is when this acceleration really took place, there was a fifty percent increase in studio space. You obviously had really important franchises and experienced crews that were sort of groomed on the Harry Potter movies, which is obviously a very um, sort of post two thousand franchise, right. and the Bond films, of course, uh, and also a rise in the number of special effects studios and post-production studios so i think all of those things sort of kind of came together in this sort of post perhaps 97 i guess period um shifting towards uh i guess film london initiatives like film london uh, the use of 
popular cinema as part of kind of visit Britain and the Bond movies as part of this come to come to London and come to Britain and see the where the, where the films are filmed so I do think that London has sort of replaced Hollywood in many ways as the world sort of you know I was going to say the world's filmmaking hub but there's certainly this real concentration and I do wonder yeah we were talking before before we started about whether whether even in the last couple of years since the article's come out, whether more films are being filmed here. I think perhaps sequences of the new Mission Impossible, certainly a film I didn't really get a chance to talk about in the article, the the second uh, Spider-Man movie, um, second of many, I think second now, but probably the fifth or sixth one in total, uh, <laughs> has an extended sort of sequence, action sequence in, in London, uh, and, and crucially is a, is a film about, the illusionist potential of digital technology. So um, I think, yeah, London's only going to continue on this upward upward trajectory, but it's it's not a new phenomenon, but it's certainly, I think, a, a kind of concentrated one. Yeah, that's so interesting, um, particularly the way that these films are sort of reacting to social and political issues. My first guest, Arabella, you know, she, she's a student um, at King's, and, and she was talking about mm. Lahaine, which is, you know, such a relevant film, 20, I think 20, 25 years on now, oh, yeah. um, about its, you know, association with Paris and terrorism. And I wonder if if you think that these films, these kind of, you know, most of them are just action superhero films, but if they're also very pressing and you know that they're responding to, you know, real sociopolitical issues. Yeah, I mean, Lahan is a is a yeah a kind of. <laughs> I remember studying that was a film that is sort of burned into a lot of film undergraduate students. I think so. Uh, yeah, no, I mean the, the use of location in something like those those sorts of socially realist films. I guess if you if you want to call them that. Um, certainly, I think these blockbuster movies from you know the Tom Cruise Edge of Tomorrow. You mentioned Jack Jack Ryan, uh, the new Bourne movie. That sort of stuff. I think is 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 really using. Certainly, I think it's using the the space of the city in a in a kind of completely different way. It's sort of migrating the basic units of the action genre, the chase, the explosion, uh, the star. I think it, there's certain a certain intrigue about seeing these elements of the of the action film be relocated to to, to London. But um, yeah, I think there's certainly something about the po I mean I try and I try to tap into a, a little bit in the in the article but uh, that sort of ascension to devastation experienced by London is very much a sort of yeah I think a post 7-7 I mean I'm, I'm kind of very interested in in the terrorist attacks largely because I was catching the train on the morning of the attacks and I was asked I was asked by the person who was selling me the ticket do you I've heard there's a power surge do you still want to go and I said, yeah, I've got to go up. So I was, so I've always been really interested in that as a particular kind of event, and 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 in many ways, it's whether you know, it's kind of like Donald Trump. It's sort of become an inevitable critical lens through which to examine a lot of different media products. And actually, um, in the case of this this sort of um, decrepit, uh, falling down, precarious city space, I think a kind of precarious city space, which obviously is something even even in the current climate, where we're we're sort of part angry, part precarious, we're on edge, and it's sort of yeah, I I, I do wonder whether there might be a, a different kind of iteration of these sorts of movies that are perhaps less indebted to a, a post seven seven climate of, of terrorist imagery uh, and technology, uh, and more towards something that that. I, I, I don't want to say a sort of post-COVID cinema, but certainly something that perhaps taps into to, uh, the, the the precarity of a monumental space. Yeah, I mean, we, regarding sort of monumental, um, you know, London is, is just packed full of landmarks that we all recognise, largely due to sort of the huge efforts of, of you know, the London Tourism Board, you know, the Great Britain, you know, uh, slogan that they sort of plaster internationally. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if these films, you know, they're both presenting London as a product, but they're also presenting it as a villain. You know, it's very antagonistic. It's a it's a challenge for these heroes mm. to overcome. And I, 
and I just wanted to ask what you what you thought about that that relationship between you know these kind of imperial uh, buildings, but also the way that they're they're mm-hmm. really treated as you know not not quite negatively, actually. Uh, it's a good a good question. I think obviously a lot of a lot of certainly Hollywood films are always torn between the domestic and the international and the the packaging and the selling of London exactly as you said. This framing as a uh, as a site of interest within a, a sort of I guess a broader global imaginary, and with that comes questions of tourism and intended audience and, and so forth. Um, and so that yeah, I guess the tension between this city is this utopian space that we see in all these popular films. And you're right, you're absolutely right, I've not really thought about it, that the city itself becomes a sort of hazard to, to navigate. In that way, I think it perhaps reconjures some of the sort of post-war uses of the city, which you know better than me. Um, but sort of, yeah, I'm thinking of films like Hue and Cry, where the children are using the, the post-war landscape um, to sort of navigate, and it becomes both a hazard, but ultimately it becomes like a playground, it becomes like a home. The bomb site is playground is a very familiar sort of um, part of the post-war image repertoire, I guess. Um, but I guess there's sort of perhaps mileage to thinking about the kinds of landmarks so obviously we get the traditional establishing shots which are very transparent in the way that they are maintaining and presenting the 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 sense of location shooting it's not just london is present it's that london was there pro filmically and we went there to film so you get obviously establishing shots as you say of, of of big ben it's always really interesting to me how quickly locations become part of that repertoire so i'm thinking of uh yeah thinking of of monuments like the shard but but the walkie-talkie i think the tom cruise again to continue this tom cruise theme uh, uh his the revision of the mummy the, the remake of the mummy i think has a very famous sequence where um the the eponymous mummy is walking down um uh, i think kind of fleet street or certainly close to that area and you have kind of st paul's but then you also have the sh- the shard and then you also have the walkie-talkie and they are just it kind of exploded as she's walking walking down i guess with the kinds of i mean there's a few with using london um, kind of London Bridge area, Borough Market, that kind of stuff. Normally, it's it's places of power. A couple of action movies um, use the the Millennium Wheel. I guess is that's quite an interesting one. I think one of the the Fantastic Four movies uses that. Um, I suppose St Paul's is an interesting one because historically it's never really allowed to be destroyed on film because it was never really destroyed in in the war and the very famous front cover of the the Daily Mail that sort of has you know German bombs got everything but it didn't get this and very famously that exact same image was used in German newspapers to sort of suggest we got everything and this was the only thing so I'm sort of interested in how films historically haven't really and even the new mission impossible film i think uses um uses uh, st paul's and the new hellboy film sort of blows it up and but then it's repaired by the end of the film and i think that's really important that st paul's is of all the landmarks that's the one that always remains untouched because it has this sort of connection to the stoicism and, and the embodiment of the blitz spirit but um uh, and just as you were talking, I was thinking about low and high space, whether or not there's a distinction between how space is used on the ground, as you were talking about it being a sort of threat, London as an antagonistic space, whether there's a that can unfold or, or might be something that plays out in terms of different kinds of city space. The city on the ground is very different to the city in the air. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, particularly since London is such a low rise city. Um, I'm from Hong Kong, so you know I came here, and they were like, "Look at the skyscrapers," <laughs> and I go, "What skyscrapers? There are two. And um, but again, I think that creates the feeling that de- it's very densely packed, particularly when they're doing those action sequences, yeah. and it just creates that. I'm going to say that kind of Manhattan scape that we're so used to seeing. But I wondered also about the Thames because it's such a uh, it's such an important framing in these films, and you talk about it briefly in the article. Yeah. Uh, if there's any more kind of 
metaphorical meaning um you know having this winding winding river um you know yeah. juxtaposed against all of these uh you know silver glittery buildings yeah well i suppose that's the that's the ten- yeah you're right there's the tension between london and then london as a as a coherent whole and then the specific places so well, and you, you know, you know this as you know the, the teaching when we teach London, it's sort of particular. The North, the King's, the development of King's Cross, the redevelopment of King's Cross is is very different to to um, gentrification in Brixton, which is very different to the affluent areas of the of West London, which is very different to this sort of East End imaginary that, as you're right, has been tied to that kink in the Thames, but actually extends. That's an interesting space, anyway. You know, the, the development of the Docklands and and that kind of thing. Um, an area of London where I lived during my PhD and and the discrepancy sort of the other side of the Thames you know East London above the Thames is very different to sort of just the just that bit below um but I think the Thames I mean I, I'm trying to think back some of the the writing on on London and cinema when Charlotte funny enough when Charlotte Bronston was writing her book on London and cinema she was teaching us that course that would become that book and I think that's how I kind of fell in love with with the representation of London on screen back from Passport to Pimlico and those kinds of films right up to right up to the Mission Impossible franchises which are obviously very different um but I, I don't know I think maybe the Thames often the analogies you get as sort of the lifeblood of the city and the thing that kind of runs through it and the and and same with the underground the underground is the arteries of the city and if that gets disrupted and clogged up then the city falls um but I don't know I wonder whether it's to do with the there's not that many action I mean the bomb film's obviously really good for action set pieces set on the Thames but it's often it's often part of the repertoire of the establishing shot and then the film sort of analyzes different kinds of areas but it's just a, it's just kind of a shorthand i guess um but it'd be interesting to see to see whether the thames i mean i'm trying to think of there's that image of hitchcock floating in the thames during the promotional stuff for frenzy and obviously that's how the film begins but um yeah i guess the the thames is is perhaps maybe it's to do with <laughs> filming and and um the actual ability to yeah yeah the ability to yeah exactly thinking about uh, you don't really want to disrupt a space like the Thames that's the thing that is is the the stuff changes around it and and you know that thing about rivers they're always cha- they're always kind of changing but they the Thames is the thing that really structures the city the Thames and I think the underground are really interesting spaces and it's interesting that perhaps filmmakers has gone towards the tube as a as a period as a sorry as a as a place to to film their films over extended period and using these ghost stations and all that sort of stuff uh, and they've sort of relatively kept the Thames unchecked i mean i'm sure loads of listeners are like but what about that film but um for my memory it, it feels like the thames is something that's sort of it's there in films to establish the location but it's not really interrogated perhaps in the same way um which i guess is sort of yeah significant in its own right and i suppose we we can't not talk about um the arrangement the topographical yeah. arrangement of london and how it is depicted it often very inauthentically in films. I think there's a great example in, in Thor, the first Thor, where he takes a, 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 train, a train to Greenwich. How do I get to Greenwich? Take this train, three stops. Yeah, he's going to... Yeah, I think he's going to... He wants to go to Greenwich, but he's... He, that's not the way. That's not the way to get to that's not the way to get to Greenwich, Chris Hemsworth. Um, I don't care if you are a, are a god. That's you've got on the wrong line. But that's like the perennial thing: is if you know the geography, you're always sort of thinking, "Oh, why is why is that? even the Skyfall, the Bond movie, where he he goes goes like the wrong way or something?" But if you know the geography, you know you know what's right and what's wrong. But um, yeah, you're right. The Thor does 
certainly plays fast and loose with the geography of London. Fantastic. And I guess just to 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 finish us off, I asked the million dollar question of all my guests. What yeah. is, Chris, your favourite city? I've kind of lived in London for over over 10 years. I taught London modules. I've It's the, obviously the place where I work, the place where I live. I, yes, I've taught modules on London and film. It crops up in my... But I probably would say Paris, <laughs> which is like a terrible thing. But but And it's only very recently I found myself really enjoying being in Paris. And I, I last summer I went there twice over the summer and, and absolutely loved it. My French is terrible, but um, I just... There's something about it. And, I've, and, wh- and one thing I've... In terms of ownership, I found very quickly that I knew my way around and I could just work out rough places in relation to these big big landmarks. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I love London and it's sort of framed a lot of what I do in academia and, and beyond. But there's sort of something I get now, the idea of the magic of, of Paris, which is probably terrible to say as we're talking about London. But London's a close second, I think. Paris first. Great answer. Um, and before we let you go, we should probably highlight Fantasy Animation, which is this incredible project which you co-founded with Alex Sargent. It's kind of a collective. It's podcasts, it's events, it's articles by practitioners, by academics, by artists, by everyone um, engaging with the medium of of basically animation with fantasy cinema. And it's just an amazing space of discussion. So I just wanted you to ask you, you know, what's next? So, yeah. Well, uh, somehow getting you continually involved again. That's probably plan number number one, Ovs. Um, no, website, yeah, the website and the, the, the podcast are, are going really well. I think we'd love to do a few more sort of public-facing events when when the world gets back on its axis and, and we're sort of allowed to again. We really enjoyed our screening series. We've managed to get in contact with a few few guests to do some podcasts um, from visual effects. We want to sort of, I think we also want to talk to a few more animators and get them talking about their practice as well, because um, it would be interesting to balance the academic side with the sort of practical side. And also blur them a little bit to get practitioners talking in ways that they perhaps want to make their work a little bit more accessible. But more podcasts, um, um, blog posts are coming thick and fast, which is good. So, um, yeah, we're really grateful with the the authors that we've got sort of sort of lined up. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do some more more sort of in-person things where we, we sort of take animation on the road. We've had a couple of trips that's unfortunately to, to Europe and and uh, we were going to go to Prague and Munich, but um, unfortunately we weren't allowed. But hopefully we'll get a chance in 2021 to be able to to go and visit some museums and talk to kind of curatorial staff and, and think about the curation side of, of fantasy and animation and, and stuff like, does, does a place of a particular book, like for example, the fantasy animation book in the BFI is in the animation section rather than the fantasy one. And so the curatorial practices that embed the way that we as academics engage with material i think is something we'd like to also look at so yeah in answer to your question hopefully lots but but we'll see that was me talking to chris holiday and you can find out more about fantasy animation at fantasy-animation.org i really hope you've enjoyed this first episode of cities and cinema questions comments do you want to be a guest drop me a line cities at gmail.com follow us on twitter follow us on instagram any feedback welcome and do remember to subscribe i hope you've enjoyed the show how do i get to greenwich take this train three stops find the gap